I had an experience when I was a sophomore in college in a worship setting like this that I want to share with you because it's an, it's an experience that I'll never forget. Uh, at the university I went to, Howard Payne University, a little Baptist college in the middle of nowhere, central Texas, Brownwood. If you've ever been to Brownwood, every road leads up that leads out of Brownwood. So uh, it's just a little hole in the ground out there where they put this great Christian university. Nothing against Brownwood if you're from Brownwood. But anyway, it's a great place to go to college. There's nothing else there to do. But in Brownwood, we had this thing at Howard Payne called UC, which is University Celebration. Every Wednesday night, the kids would gather together uh, in, a, in a small chapel. And typically, we had a worship team, you know, some kids with guitars and pianos, nothing like what we get to experience here every Sunday. But, but it was good for its time. And then usually a, a Bible professor or another professor, or even a local pastor, would, would come up and, and preach or teach for a few minutes, you know, that night. This particular Wednesday night was unusual because when the worship team got finished, they all went and sat down and, and somebody prayed and, and, and nobody was on the front row. That's usually where the person that was going to speak sat. Nobody came up. There's no pulpit that night. It was just an open stage like this. It got really quiet and the door opened, the side door opens. This, this person walks out and they walk right to the middle of the stage and they are completely decked out in a clown outfit. They got the hat, they got the nose. They got the big floppy sleeves, all the makeup. They got the shoes that are 10 times too big. I mean, the whole nine yards, and they stand in the middle of the stage, completely quiet, and everybody's like, what is going on here? And a voice from that man's body says this, four words I'll never forget. Where are the clowns? Where are the clowns? I had no idea what he was talking about. For the next 20 minutes, he studied and shot, taught on this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning. So I want you to find your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 17 through 25. That's not the title of my sermon this morning, but it was the title of his message that night, and it's something I've never forgotten, and you'll understand why in a minute. So if you would, stand with me, because this is God's Word, it's not the words of man, it's God's Word. We want to reverence the Word of God, acknowledge that it's from God, and I'll read aloud and here as you read silently, and it says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, <clears throat> not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. It's always important when we come to Scripture to look at the context. So think about who's writing this. This is Paul. And Paul is a Jewish man, or he was a Jewish man. In fact, he was known as Saul before he converted to Christianity. His name was Saul of Tarsus. So he was from Tarsus, which was a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in that city of Tarsus, it was a part of the Roman Empire. It was a heavily Greek-populated city, so it was a very secular city. There was a university there that would have rivaled the one in Athens or even Alexandria. And Paul grew up a Jewish young man till the age of 14. He lived in Tarsus with his parents, 
and he was in a very secular city. So as a Jewish person, he would have lived in a very specific part of the city, segregated away from everyone else. He probably had very little interaction in the city that he lived in because he did not want to corrupt himself or be uh, corrupted by the world that he lived in. And for the most part, the first 13 years of his life, he lived in a city, a culture, that did not support or agree with the things he believed in. At the age of 14, he moves to Jerusalem to study under the great rabbi Gamaliel. That's what the book of Acts tells us. And from his 14th birthday until later in his life, he's in Jerusalem. Now, the culture completely shifts for him because he goes from this culture where his beliefs are not supported, not encouraged, not rewarded, and he moves to Jerusalem where now the majority of the people there, though there are some Romans there, the majority of the people in Jerusalem do agree with exactly what he believes, and they do encourage his beliefs, and they actually reward his beliefs. And then one day, Paul, in his devout following of Judaism, is on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians and throw them in jail, and the Lord gets his attention with a bright light and blinds him. And Paul becomes converted to Christianity, gets saved. Jesus saves him, and he becomes a convert of Christianity, he changes his name to Paul, and Paul begins then to have this mission to share the gospel with people. He goes back to Jerusalem ultimately, and now, once again, he's in a culture that largely does not support the things that he believes in. So that whole gyration of going from one culture to the other, maybe you can relate to that because we live in a culture here that largely still, for the most part, not completely, supports the things that we believe in, supports our belief in the gospel, for example. Not everyone believes that, but to a large degree, the people in our culture still support what we believe in. Well, Paul goes out and does you know, missionary journeys. You see that in the book of Acts. And in one situation, he was in Athens, very secular city again, and he's sharing the gospel with modern-day philosophers. And this is what they said about him in Acts chapter 17, verse 18. It says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him, Paul, and some said... What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Now, that's a friendly way to put what it says in the Greek. <laughs> because basically, it's a huge insult to Paul. The way that these philosophers thought of Paul. Some of your Bibles say an idle babbler. But really, they're insulting Paul. None of us want to be thought of as ignorant by anyone. But that's what they say about Paul, this ignorant show-off. And so Paul finds himself in the midst of these very wise people, air quotes there, and he's being basically persecuted. He's being basically made fun of because of what he believes. Now, in this passage I just read to you a minute ago from 1 Corinthians, he uses the word foolish or foolishness several times. It's the Greek word moria, which is the word that we derive the word moron from. Moronic, foolish. It actually means to be mentally inert, <laughs> which means nothing's going on mentally, right? That's the idea here. And what he says is exactly what my professor said 39 years ago when he stood on that stage, he said, I am willing to be a clown for Jesus. If that's the way the culture perceives me, if they call me an idle babbler, if they call me a, a fool, if they call me a moron, if they call me a clown, okay, I'll take that. I'll be willing to accept that because that's the way the culture, the Bible says, that is perishing, thinks of the gospel and thinks of those many times who are sharing the gospel. The question is, where are the clowns today? Where are the people like Paul who are willing to go deal with the culture that totally thinks they're idiots for believing what they believe? You say, well, that's not really prevalent here. Well, it's prevalent in our culture. It is. Several years ago, I had a good friend that I actually went to college with named Jack who was 
asked to be on Bill O'Reilly's television show. This is several years ago when he had a television show on Fox News every night. And uh, the reason that he was asked to come be on the show, he was a pastor at the time, and Bill O'Reilly, something was going on in the political world at that time with evangelicals, and so Bill O'Reilly wanted to get someone's perspective about what evangelicals actually believe. So he calls this pastor friend of mine who lived in North Carolina, and he interviews him on TV, and he asks Jack, my friend, so what is it that evangelicals believe? What's their basic belief? And Jack said this. He said, evangelicals believe that in order for a person to go to heaven when they die, they have to have a, po- a moment in their life when they put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have to turn away from their sin, put their trust completely in Jesus alone, and if they do that, they'll go to heaven. On the converse, if they never put their trust in Jesus Christ, they will go to hell forever. Bill O'Reilly looked at him and said, oh, come on, no one believes that. That's what Bill O'Reilly said. You know what? I believe that. Isn't that what you believe? That's what I teach. That's what we preach. That's what this church stands for. That's the gospel is that anyone can be saved, right? But here's this television show that many of us have watched over the years. Here's this guy that's been on television a lot, basically saying no one believes that. You'd have to be a fool to believe that, right? You have to be a clown to believe that. That's what Paul's saying. That's the way the world thinks of us. And so sometimes we think about our students that leave here and they go off just a couple of weeks ago. We, we had our seniors standing down here. You guys were a part of that, and we do that every year. Over the years, there's been hundreds and hundreds of kids who've left the confines of Longview, Texas, and gone somewhere either to work or gone to a university somewhere. And, and some of those kids, and not just from our church, but across Christianity in America, some of those kids go off to college, they go off to work in the real world, and they crater spiritually. And for years and years, people have studied that. Why does that happen? Is it a deficiency in our youth ministry? Is there something else going on? I think there's a lot of reasons for it. But I think one of the reasons for it, honestly, is because kids grow up in this culture, this subculture of the church, because that's kind of what we are, and then they grow up in a culture here in East Texas that, again, by and large, supports what they believe in, agrees with what they believe in. My son went to public school his entire time he was in Longview, and until he was in the 7th, 8th, ninth grade, somewhere along there, That's the first time he didn't have a Christian teacher. Every other year he had a Christian teacher in public school. There are a lot of Christians in our culture, in the institutions that our kids are a part of, coaching, whatever. And so they they get a culture of acceptance. And then they leave here and they go somewhere else. And often they don't find that same culture. Often they find a culture that's actually hostile to what they believe, a culture that thinks they're foolish, a culture that thinks they're moronic or clowns for believing whatever it was that they got taught back there at home. And in those situations, sometimes our kids go, I don't want to be thought of like that. I mean, do you want to be thought of like that? No. So I think a lot of times some of what motivates their cratering spiritually is they go, man, is that what I believe? I don't want to believe that anymore. So I'll just move away from that. What I really want is respect. And a lot of us live for the respect of other people. But what Paul says is, you know what? That's not always going to happen. Sometimes people are going to think you're foolish if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just students that we see crater. There are adults in modern Christianity that crater too. And you guys probably remember a book um, about 1997 called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anybody remember that book? Yeah, it was written by a guy named Joshua Harris. And Joshua wrote that book at the ripe old age of 21. I remember as a youth minister thinking, what does a 21-year-old know about dating? You know, I don't know. I never, I never agreed with the book, to be honest with you. But in 2018, Joshua went on to become, wrote another book, went on to become a pastor of a large church in Maryland. 2018, he came out and said, I disavow the truths of that book. I don't believe that book is true, and I want the publisher to take it off the shelves and quit publishing it. I don't agree with it anymore. The book, I kissed dating goodbye. A year later, in 2019, Joshua came out and said, my wife and I are getting a divorce. 
and I no longer identify myself as a Christian. Now, he's a, whether you agree with him or not, he's a very influential guy. So what's going on when these adults who are Christian leaders, pastors, people like them, and I could give you a lot of other examples. John Piper's son, Abraham, has a million followers on TikTok. And almost every day he puts out some kind of video about his disbelief in Christianity. He doesn't believe in Christianity anymore. That's influential. That has an impact on people. What is that about? Why are people what they call deconstructing their faith? Some of it is because they don't want to look foolish to the culture they live in. You mean to tell me that if a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, if they just ask the Lord to come into their life and save them, that a guy who died on a cross 2,000 years ago, somehow he'll make that apply to their life and the penalty of their sin, and he'll forgive them and then go to heaven when they die and live forever? That seems silly to those who are perishing. That seems too simplistic. You believe that? Is that what you believe? There's no way that's true. Well, so what we see happening even in Southern Baptist circles in the last few years is uh, um, sort of a resurgence of Reformed theology. Now, in the sense that we're not Catholic, in a sense we're all Reformed, but to an extreme version of that, it's Calvinism. We don't believe in Calvinism here at Marley. We don't teach Calvinism. But if you're familiar with what that theology is, basically it means that God decides in its extreme form, God decides everything. He decides who's going to get saved. You people over here are going to get saved. You people over here are not going to get saved, or, or vice versa, or whatever. And you don't have anything to do with it. It's not your choice. God's sovereign. God's in control. God decides everything. We, we don't teach that or believe that here. But that is a very popular idea among Christians now. I would say people from the age of 45 and younger, pastors especially, have been heavily influenced. Some of our seminaries teach that now. So you say, well, what is the end game there? Well, the reason I believe that people are, are drawn to that, younger generations are drawn to that, is it seems a lot more intellectual to believe that than to believe what I just explained to you. Because I can say, well, you know what? I don't know who's going to get saved and who's not going to get saved. It's really not up to me. It's up to God. It takes all responsibility off me. I don't have to be a fool or a clown for telling you the simplistic gospel that, it, that Jesus portrayed and what Paul preached. I don't have to do that. I can just say, you know what? God decides it all. It's really his responsibility. That seems more intelligent. I've heard guys say, well, Calvinism just seems more intelligent. Well, what are you trying to look intelligent? Is that the goal here? Because Paul says the preaching of the gospel to those who are perishing is foolishness. So where are the clowns? Where are the people who are willing to embrace the foolishness of the gospel? Because I believe that it's not enough to simply accept that the gospel is foolish to people in the culture or even tolerate that. I believe what you see in Paul is someone who fully embraced the foolishness of the gospel. And that's my challenge to you guys this morning. Have you fully embraced the foolishness of the gospel in your life? Because if you haven't, you're setting yourself up to be afraid of being called that very thing. And what that does is it squelches the gospel. You don't share it with people because you don't want to be perceived in the way that Paul is perceived when he was in Athens. So this morning, I want to share with you really quick three things that I think happen when you fully embrace the gospel from the text this morning. And the first is this. When you fully embrace the foolishness of the gospel, you will share the gospel more confidently. That doesn't seem to make sense. You go, wait a minute, if I embrace the foolishness of it, won't I be more likely to be like, scared to share it because I know people are going to perceive me as foolish? No, I believe the opposite happens. I believe you see that in Paul here. He says, look, God actually designed it that way. Paul says he was sent to, not to baptize, but to preach. Now, you just saw us baptized, so we obviously love baptism. It's a great expression of your faith publicly. As Will said, if you ever have a desire, if you've not been baptized and you're a believer, that's one of the next steps for you. And so we encourage you to follow the Lord in baptism. But listen, Paul wasn't anti-baptism. He was just saying, my primary purpose is to share the gospel. My primary purpose was to preach, not necessarily to do what I'm doing right here, he did that sometimes. Sometimes he sat in the square with the philosophers and talked to them 
had a conversation with them because the Greek word for preach here just literally means to share the gospel. It just means to talk to people, to have a conversation with them. And Paul did that in lots of different ways. And he said, I was sent to do that. So my question is, is Paul the only one that was sent to do that? No, we are, we are sent as well, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says this in Philippians, not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue my goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And then this is for us right here. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal that to you also. So what he's saying is, yes, I've been sent by the Lord. That's my purpose in life. Jesus said this. He said that peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's saying, look, we all have um, we, he's given all of us the mission, the same mission he gave Paul, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with people, to talk to people about the gospel, because that's part of our purpose, but also because of the great love for God has for people. So the reality is God is willing for me and you to be thought of as fools, morons, and clowns if it leads someone else to him. He's okay with that. He's okay that Paul got thought of in the same way, that Paul got called uh, you know, an arrogant show-off, which is a nice way of putting it. Because he said, if it ultimately results in the gospel being shared with people that I love, God says, I'm all about that. So for you and me, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we know where we're going for eternity. We're good. Nothing can even mess that up. But between here and there, yeah, we may be thought of as a fool, as a clown, as a moron. And we go, okay, I, I accept that. Because that's how people find out about the Lord. And so it's really, really important to understand that Paul's saying, if you have a different mindset, God will make that available. He'll make that, I mean, make that known to you. We have values here at our church, and when you come to the membership class, one of the things we talk about is our values. Now, we don't put them up on the wall everywhere. If you have real values, they tend to come out in what you do and how you live, what you prioritize. One of those is a thing called gospel urgency. The gospel, we know what that is. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. He came to die for you and forgive you of your sins. The urgency of it is that none of us know when we're going to take our last breath. None of us know that. Life is fragile. James said life is a vapor. So none of us know how long our life is going to last, but we know this, when this life is over, you don't get any more chances to receive Christ. That decision has to be made on this side of eternity. So there's an urgency to that with the people that you live next door to, the people that you work with, the people that um, you have a relationship with. There's an urgency to that. And that's what gospel urgency is. Well, here's how we define that, launching people to live sent lives to change the world. Launching people to live sent lives. What's a sent life? Well, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So does that mean we have to go to Africa? No. Nope. It may mean we're sent across the street or we're sent across the parking lot or we're sent across the hallway. But we're sent. We go with a purpose to share the gospel, even if the people that we're going to think we're fools. Think of us as morons. doesn't matter. We go anyway. We do it because that's what the Lord wants us to do because he loves those people. He values those people that much. So when you embrace the foolishness of the gospel, you can share the gospel more confidently. Just get over it. <laughs> you can say, look, some people are going to reject me. Some people are going to think I'm a fool, but that's okay. I'm in really good company. We just sang a song that says something about if it, if it means the fire, if it means I have to go into the fire, right? You just sang that. When you share the gospel, you always go into the fire. You always go into some, uh, an adversarial situation where people may not necessarily agree with you, where they may oppose you, right? I mean, that's going into the fire. But the rest of that song says, I know you'll go with me. I know you'll be there with me. And that's really, really important. So this morning, again, 
When you embrace the gospel, it helps you share it more confidently. The second thing I would say is this. When you embrace the foolishness of the gospel, you will trust the gospel, the gospel's power to change anyone. The gospel's powerful. Paul says right here in verse 18, it's the power of God to those who are being saved. So the gospel is powerful. Let me ask you this question. What is the most powerful thing you know? What would that be? Somebody say, oh, nuclear fusion. Okay, no, nuclear fusion is not the most powerful thing you know. Nuclear fusion can send you into eternity, but it can't change where you go for eternity. The gospel can. The gospel is more powerful than nuclear fusion. That's a great question to ask somebody. In fact, if you're interacting with somebody and you don't know how to start a conversation, that's a great question to ask them. Hey, what, tell me, what, what do you think the most powerful thing is you know? They'll think about it. And whatever they answer, you can say, well, let me tell you what I think the most powerful thing I know is. The most powerful thing I know is the gospel. What is the gospel? Let me tell you about the gospel. So what if you decided from this point forward, because I realize the truth is that many of us never open our mouth and tell anybody about the thing we say we love and care about the most. The most powerful thing we know, we never share it with anybody. Does that make any sense to anybody? But we do it. Why? Because we're afraid of being called or thought of as a clown. That's it. Because nobody in America is going to arrest you. Not yet. Nobody in America is going to beat you up for that. Probably not. But they may think you're foolish. They may think you're a moron. And we don't want that. So we don't talk to people about the thing that we know is the most powerful thing in our lives. Paul said this. He said this. I am so eager, or so I am eager, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's headed to Rome. And he's talking about his eagerness. Now, he's going to have the same reception in Rome that he had in Athens. He's going to be called names. He's going to be laughed at. He's going to be considered a fool. But he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So Paul's saying, even if you think of me as ignorant, as a clown, as a moron, I'm still eager to preach the gospel to you. That's powerful, because I know the gospel can change your life, and not just your life, but anyone's life. The gospel has the power to do that. When I was uh, in college, two summers, I worked at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And one night, um, I was at a softball game, and we were sitting at a softball game, and this guy next to me, another intern, said, hey, there's a guy coming. This guy's name is John Bramlett. And I didn't know who John Bramlett was. And if you're older than me, you might know who John Bramlett was. John Bramlett played professional football in the 60s. He was, his nickname was John Bull Bramlett. He was mean. Okay? If you Google him, don't do it now. One of the pictures that will come up of him is him sitting on the sideline in his full uniform smoking a cigar during a game. Now, I don't condone cigars or cigarettes. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying the guy was tough. He was mean, okay? Until somebody told him about Jesus, and it changed his life. So this guy's sitting next to me at the softball game. He goes, John Bramlett's coming. I promise you he's going to share the gospel with you. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm already saved. I'm good. I think we're fine. He's like, I'm serious. He'll get in your face, man. He's that guy. He's going to... He's going to share the gospel. Just get ready. I'm watching him. He's talking to people all the way down. Sure enough, he comes up to me, sticks his hand out, and he says, hey, I'm John Brown. I said, I'm Paul Coleman. Good to meet you. He said, let me ask you a question, Paul. He said, have you ever trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior? And I said, yes, I have. And he said, that's great. That means we're brothers, man. We're going to be in heaven together forever. I'm so glad to know that, man. It's good to meet you. He moved on to the next person. That's John Brown. For the rest of his life after he met Jesus Christ, he shared Christ. His goal was to share Jesus Christ with every person he met. Can you imagine? Every person he met, he had that conversation with him. And a couple came up after the last service and said, we know John Bramlett. We know him. He, was a, he had a great evangelistic association. He did that. He lived that out. He was so tenderhearted. I said, I know, because the Lord changed him. That's the power of the gospel. 
The gospel can change the meanest linebacker in the NFL into the most gospel-sharing man on the planet. That's the gospel. Can you think of anything more powerful? No. So embracing the foolishness of the gospel helps us trust its power. When you share it with people, you can trust its power. It's not about your words. It's about the power of the gospel. And yeah, we share with people and sometimes they reject it. Sometimes they don't want it. Sometimes they think we're foolish. But that didn't thwart Paul. He said, I'm eager. I'm eager to go to Rome. I know not everybody there is going to become a Christian, but I'm eager to do it anyway because some will. Some will. And that's what I care about is doing what the Lord asked me to do and what he's called me to do. So the gospel, when you embrace the foolishness of it, it helps you to be able to to trust um, its power. The third thing is this. When you embrace the 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 foolishness of the gospel, you will use the gospel to understand human weakness as necessary. But what does that mean? Well, you can't come to Jesus and put your trust in him until you acknowledge that you have a problem you can't solve. That's weakness. And Paul talks about here the wise, the wisdom of the age, or human wisdom, or the the intelligence of the intelligent. He talks about the value that's placed on human wisdom, people who get highly educated, or people who are, it's not always the highly educated, because what Paul actually says here is that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jewish people. Stumbling block, the Greek word there is scandalon, which means a scandal. Jesus is a scandal to Jewish people. Not just to Jewish people, by the way, to religious people. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody who's very religious, whatever their religion is, and you ask them, have you ever trusted Christ? Well, they'll, they'll answer you by saying, basically, no, I, I'm super involved in my religion. I do this, I volunteer here, I, I read these books, or I say these prayers, or I go to this meeting so many times a week, or whatever. And they'll talk about their devotion, they'll talk about their sincerity, but they, don't, they won't admit, they're not readily going to admit their human weakness. And that is that they can't save themselves. That all their effort, whether they're involved in religion or something else, can't save them. So what the gospel helps you see is that human weakness is necessary. It's necessary for people to come to a place where they go, I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself. It's a stumbling block, he says to Jewish people. It's foolishness to Gentiles, to Greeks. And yet, God uses that to lead people to himself. We live in a culture, y'all, that applauds and celebrates human wisdom. And human wisdom is not bad unless human wisdom keeps you from admitting your weakness, that you're flawed, that you can't solve your greatest problem, forgiveness, salvation. If your human wisdom keeps you from admitting that, then your human wisdom is a great roadblock to the gospel in your life. Every one of you that have put put your trust in Jesus Christ have had to come the same way. You've had to say, I can't save myself. So I need you, Jesus. That's human weakness. We celebrate it because we go, Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm strong. So I don't condemn human weakness, and Jesus doesn't either. He actually uses it. And as you understand the foolishness of the gospel, you can know that when you're sharing with somebody who has more accolades than you, more awards than you, more nutters after their name or whatever else it is, they still have to come the same way to the cross. They have to come through human weakness. And for many of them, because they're highly educated and they think so highly of themselves, it's hard for them to admit that. It's hard for them to say, well, I'm going to put my trust in a simple gospel, so simple that a child could understand it. But that's what they have to do. And as you share the gospel with people that you may think are smarter than you or more intelligent than you, it's okay. You don't have to be intimidated by that. You do trust its power, and you do know that eventually they're going to have to come to the place where they... They embrace the weakness in their life. And that's not up to you to do that. The Holy Spirit has to do that in their life. 
But when they come to that place where they embrace weakness, then they're ready to receive Jesus Christ. They're ready to come to the place where they can give their life to Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage all of you this morning. You know, several years ago when I was a youth minister, we used to take kids to Wyoming. And there was a, uh, they have a huge rodeo there in Wyoming, shared in Wyoming every summer. Their rodeo arena looks kind of like our football stadiums here. And so there was this uh, rodeo arena and there's this carnival. And right between the two, there's this dork, this guy, this Christian doctor there would set up this dorky red and white circus tent. And there's this hand-painted dorky sign. I mean, the first time I saw it, I thought, nobody's ever going to come in this tent. It said, will you go to heaven when you die? Two-question test reveals answer. And it's hand-painted. It's not even, you know, geometrically correct. It's just sort of like messed up. So I thought, nobody's going to come in this thing, but we signed up to help with this. So I got my high school kids out there in the road, and, and they're going in the road, and some of you are smiling because you were there and you've done this. And they go out and talk to adults, kids, whatever, and I thought, nobody's going to come in that tent. Was I ever wrong? The first year we did, 800 people came in that tent in three nights, and about 80 of them received Christ as their Savior. So I was t- totally wrong about that. But in that moment, those kids that went on that trip had to confront the fact that they were fixing to look really foolish to a lot of people. Because a lot of those people made them feel like fools. <laughs> Going in your stupid tent, I don't care about that. Man, you know. Well, there was a lady, one of the years we went, there was a lady that was a parent of one of the children or one of the youth from the church that we were working with. Because our youth were kind of partnering with their youth to help train their youth to do it. It's been several years we've been doing this. And so this lady was standing about from me to that speaker away from me. And, and my job was just to sort of supervise, make sure nobody got hurt and everything stayed sort of safe. And sometimes it did, mostly it did. But my job was just sort of supervise. And so I'm standing next to this lady, and this guy walks up from her work. And I don't really know this lady, and I wasn't eavesdropping, but I'm standing that close to her, and I hear their conversation. And this is obviously a man that she works with. And he's like, hey, what are you doing out here? She's standing right by the tent where the sign is, where her daughter's inside sharing the gospel with somebody. You know what she said to this guy she worked with? What are you doing here? Oh, I'm just here with my daughter. That was it. Moved on, changed the subject, went right on to something else. I was like, no Jesus, no gospel. No, we're here telling people about how they can go to heaven. No, I'm working with my daughter and this other youth group from Texas, and we're helping people understand how they can go to heaven. Has anybody ever shared that with you? None of that. In fact, she was embarrassed that he asked the question. She was embarrassed that he saw her at that tent. Would you have been embarrassed in that moment? Does that describe you? Because in that moment, she was embarrassed She was embarrassed to call herself a Christian in front of that guy. She was embarrassed to associate herself with Christian students who were sharing the gospel. She was ashamed of the gospel, basically. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. I'm not ashamed of it. Are you? Let me ask you this. If you're not, how come you don't tell anybody about it? Well, you don't know if I tell anybody. You're right, I don't. But I know this. The, the, the culture becomes more and more secular because less and less of us are telling people about Jesus. Because when we tell people about Jesus, the gospel changes people's lives, which changes the culture. That happens. I mean, just answer that question for yourself. When's the last time you actually engaged somebody and told them about the gospel, told them about Jesus? If it's the most important thing you know, if you're truly not ashamed of Jesus and not ashamed of what he's done in your life, then why don't you just talk to people about it? Because what you may find is, as you talk to them about your weakness and how you came to the place where you were weak and you knew you needed a Savior, they might feel the freedom to begin to open up and talk to you about theirs. Maybe. I mean, the Lord, the Holy Spirit can use that in their life. So here's the thing as I close this morning. Many of you, like I said, have already given your life to Jesus Christ. You've already come to the place where you've admitted that you can't solve your problems on your own. You can't forgive yourself. 
for God. <laughs> you need God's forgiveness. You need to be made right with him, and you can't do that without Jesus. And in your life, you came to the place where you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this about himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father unless he comes through me. That's very, very exclusive. But that's what I believe, and that's what many of you believe. But if you're here today, and you've never asked Christ to come into your life, you've never come to the place where you said, you know what, i, I got to admit, I am weak. I can't save myself. I need help. I need a Savior. Well, the great news, the gospel, the good news is that there is a Savior for you. His name is Jesus Christ. And he came and died. He says he came to give us the free gift of eternal life. The, the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it's a gift. When I was 15, almost 16, somebody offered that gift to me, and I thought it was too good to be true, but I took it. <laughs> Salvation, forgiveness. And this morning, I offer that to you. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes before we, we've got two minutes, plenty of time. You'll be out of here by noon. But I want you to just pray, especially if you're a believer, I want you to pray for the people sitting around you, um, sitting around you this morning. Those who are watching online, I want you just to tune in here real close here for just the next couple of minutes. You never ask Christ to come into your life, but you want to. You believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You just never put your trust in him personally. You have to admit that you can't save yourself. That's okay, because he's willing to save you. He wants to save you, and I'm glad to share that with you this morning. So if you want Jesus to come into your life, the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm just going to lead you in a time of calling on the name of the Lord. Is there anybody here that just raised their hand and said, that's me? I want Jesus today. I want him more than my sin. I want him more than anything else in my life. I want to be saved, because it's the greatest thing you'll ever do. And you're in a congregation of people that will wholeheartedly support you and encourage you. You guys that raised your hands, I'm, I'm just going to lead you through a time of calling on the name of the Lord. And you do that, you can use your own words or you can repeat the words that I share. The words are not what's important. What's important is your heart because he knows your heart. But the words help us. So you can just say this to the Lord. Dear God in heaven, I know you're real. I know your son Jesus is the Savior. I believe that. And I know I've sinned against you. And I'm sorry for my sin. I don't want it. I reject it. I want you. I want to be saved. I want to live forever. I want to be with you forever. I want to follow you. I want to love you. God, help me to do that. But thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. I trust him. And I want him to save me now. And I thank you that he has and that I'm forgiven. Help me now to live and love, love you and live for you, Lord, as I go forward. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.